along with many, many others. Uh, As a church community, I would say this morning, when a young person dies, it's time to gather, it's time to pause, it's time to actually kind of stop in our tracks for a minute and acknowledge the pain and the hurt of others and turn to the Lord for direction. And this is that kind of a time. We're up, we're excited, we feel like uh, I think each week we just we feel the empowerment, the encouragement of God's word, and this morning is no different. Even in times of pain, God infuses His presence into those gaps, into those places, into those crevices where there's hurt and there's pain and there's difficulty and there's massive, massive loss. And this morning. Uh, we recognize the fact that I'm referring to a family that has been part of our church, and it's the McBee family. And some of you know, and some of you will gather around, and some of you will be a part of their lives as they process the loss of their son, Charlie. Charlie was 25 years of age and was suffering deeply and took his life on Saturday, last Saturday. We're continuing to pray for Cynthia. We are continuing to pray for you, Colleen, and stand with you and believe that God is continuing his healing work in your life. Um, We are standing with uh, Joe and the Heitzler family and the struggle he continues to face in and out of hospital and what God is doing and where God is and all of that. We are praying that he continues to feel his love and presence through us. We're, we're also praying for Jordan Lindsay's family, a Torrance family, the Rocker family, who are part of our church, knows the, their kids, the kids from this, this family. And she was 21 years of old age and was, on, uh, was in uh, the Bahamas when uh, she was um, attacked by three sharks while with her family. Um, she a, was a local college student, an LMU college student. And just tragic situations. We're dealing with difficult situations in our church. And and then there's a lot of hurt and pain that come up in a time like that. I mean, we we have felt it as a family. In this loss of Charlie, it's impacted our family. And I'm sure others would agree. A lot of tragedy. These are exceptional times. And so the question is, how do we respond? How does the church respond in a time like this? And actually, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 in our passage in verse 17 all the way to verse 27. He's going to help us through this because what we find Paul doing is Paul is placing himself within the church family in Corinth. Paul puts himself in that community and and he says, I understand what you're going through because I've become part of you. I've jumped into your situation. I've taken a step into your life. And that's what we're going to learn this morning. How to take a step into somebody else's life to bring care and love and to touch them with the love of Christ. Isaac Watts was a great hymnist. He wrote hymns. Not a gymnast, but he wrote hymns. And he said, oh God, Our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. God is the answer. We know that. 
It's where our hope comes from. Under the shadow of thy throne, it's a big throne and it throws and casts a very large shadow over us. Sufficient is thy arm alone. Our defense is sure. I mean, God is on his throne. The shadow is cast. His arm goes out. It's long and he's protecting us. Even in the midst of of some really radically difficult situations. And Psalm 121 verse 2 says, my help comes from the Lord. It really does come from the Lord, the helper, my helper and maker of both heaven and earth. You know, sometimes we do feel very, very uh, insufficient. And we feel like the deer in Psalm 42 that comes to the brook panting, which is not a good thing, When a deer is at that point, it's not good. Thirst is not good in the Old Testament. It's a sign of desperation. And he gets to the brook, and the brook is bone dry. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever thought about that? The deer finally gets there panting, and there's nothing there. I mean, that's the desperation that the psalmist is trying to describe. Sometimes we're in a place and there just are no answers and we don't know what to do and it's bone dry when we get there. And yet God has us exactly where he wants us and he's doing his best work, which is the hardest thing to say. And so we might want to rush into action to help someone in need. And, and, and we say, I'll pray for you, which is absolutely important in this. And we're seeing the miracle of God work out in people's lives through a joint effort of prayer, lifting people. I like like what Mark Batterson said. He says, we really are becoming what we pray for. And we're becoming for others what we're praying for them for. Aren't we? I mean, if we're not praying for these things, we're not becoming anything. And we are seeing God work. Uh, And and some of us might say, well, I'll, I'll lend a hand. I'll bring a meal. And that's wonderful. I want to go a little further. I want to bring you Paul. See, what Paul wanted to do was not simply to introduce people to Jesus, but to introduce them to the infusion of his love. That's what Paul wanted. He wanted to go so far into community that he brought not simply the message of Jesus, not just the hope of Jesus, but the actual physical love of of Jesus in a very tangible way. See, in order to share the love of Jesus, you have to be the love of Jesus. And that's what I think Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 9 in this uh, final section of this particular chapter when Paul says these words. Am I not free? Verse 19. He says, "Uh, I am free. I'm free from all men. But I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win the more. That's how drastic Paul was. To think that he made himself something that he didn't want to be in order to win others. That's how far he actually went. He says, to the Jew I became a Jew so that I may win the Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law through not being under the law myself so that I might win those who are under the law. He says, to those who are without the law, as without the law, I became like that. Not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, but so that I might win those who are without the law. 
I became like those, those Gentiles who don't have the law. I understood them. I became part of them so that I might win them. To the weak, verse 22, I became the weak, that I might actually win the weak. I mean, imagine that. Becoming weak so you might win others who are weak. I become all things to all men so that I might win, by all means, save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And then Paul changes gears and gives us a metaphor of how how serious Paul is in this. Do you not know that those who run a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then do it to receive a perishable. They do it to receive a perishable, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul did not want to be disqualified in this race. And so here's what we learn. In light of what tragedy has happened this week, I see this passage saying that Paul would want us to strive to be even more loving toward others, even more mindful of their hardships. Think of the Corinthians and think of the vast uh, differences in uh, this community. Those upwardly mobile Christians that were sea merchants that were earning a great living. They had slaves. They had homes. They were doing well. They were on top of their game. There were many that were just getting by, middle class, struggling, And there were slaves, the weak, there were slaves as well, that either put themselves into slavery because that was the only way to survive. And there were weak, people that had come out of difficult backgrounds, marginalized people in that culture. Think of the variety of people Paul is referring to. And and Paul wanted to become like all of them to win them through the love of Christ. That's where Paul's going with this, right? That's what he's saying. And, and, and so before we just rush into help, which we often like to do, because we're afraid and we want to solve the problem, we oftentimes rush in to try to solve or we kind of step back and we kind of form our own friend group and we stick close, avoiding the pain of others. And we find it hard sometimes to even kind of step out of our comfort zone. Paul has some words for us. And uh, before I jump in, let me tell you a story what happened last week. So my wife and I got a call from uh, a couple that have been running family camp at Campus by the Sea, which is owned by InterVarsity. It's been running for, oh gosh, 40 years. Some of them have been going that long. And they continue to bring their family and then their children grow up and get married and they, now they're bringing their children and, and it's, it's a remarkable group of people that have come together once a year to become families in Christ, to grow together and enjoy and have a wonderful vacation in Catalina Island, at campus by the sea in their own private cove. And uh, uh, it's 
There's, it's, there's few things there, let's just say that. Uh, limited water supply, not a lot of electricity, and yet food arrives and uh, everybody eats and uh, there's a bed for everybody, but it's what I call uh, paradise on a budget. That's what I call it. And it was beautiful. It was a great week. And I went kind of kicking and screaming, to be honest with you. And I thought a whole week, total strangers, all these families. Um, it's not my cup of tea. Never done family camp. And and uh, not sure I really want to enter in and be the speaker. And Denise really wanted to do it. And we said, okay, let's do this thing together. And so we jumped in. And then the story started unfolding. And as we stepped out of our comfort zone, or I stepped out of my comfort zone, I began to meet people. And it was just one conversation of three meals a day. You're meeting a new family every single meal. And then there's free time all day long. And at the beachfront, we're hanging out with people and at the, around the fireplace at night. Uh, some remarkable things happened. Yeah, there were corny games and meals and family tents and swim time and hikes and barbecues. And one of the things we did, we had a Galilean breakfast the last morning. And that was kind of neat. They, they barbecued salmon and pita bread and hummus. I'm not sure that hummus was included in John 21's uh, Jesus meal, but uh, it was close. Pita and fish. I'm not sure they were eating salmon, but it was delicious. And it was, we've got this experience of a, a, a breakfast on the beachfront and then communion together. And it was, it was powerful. But we began meeting people, Sam, who lost his wife to cancer and had a nervous breakdown. And the state had to put his child under four years of age in foster care. And he just received her back wondering how he was going to survive. Kelly, who was going through a divorce, a husband probably on to somebody else, as she predicts, with her children suffering the loss of what she had and what she really wanted. Um, single moms from Palm Desert with their kids. A, a man with five children, two adopted from Russia, a beautiful family, absolutely remarkable family, close, fun, loving, caring, crazy. And he had been convicted of a felony that he did not commit. Owned a facility, something happened. A doctor had given clearance, but people felt like they needed a scapegoat, and he was handed down a sentence. A jury convicted him. You look at him and you go, there's just no, he had nothing to do with this. And even the judge agreed and said, there's something wrong with this. You're not getting a prison sentence. There's no way in the world you're going to prison. This is just wrong. Even the parole officers, like, the rules don't apply to you. I've met your family. I know your faith. Um, Do what you need to do and just keep checking in with me. He's on house arrest. And an amazing family that's been through a lot. And that's just the surface. Family after family after family after family we met. We heard their stories. And 1 Corinthians really is, the whole book is about, the whole letter to Paul writes to this church is, as we've talked about it, is a beautiful kind of broken because broken pieces of our lives are put back together in a beautiful mosaic to be seen as a beautiful work of God. 
And so those broken pieces work for a purpose. That's what we've been learning. And I think in chapter 9, God uses broken people to reach broken people. He doesn't use the wise, as we've been learning, or the, the educated, or the top of the class, or all the things that we would say would count for success. I mean, look at the life of Moses. Moses jumps out thinking that he's the guy to lead the people out of Egypt. He's educated. He's brilliant. He's been, he's been well-versed in language. He's ready to go, and yet God says, you're not ready. And has to go through 40 years on the backside of a desert to become ready to lead the people out of Egypt into Israel, the promised land. So what do we learn? What do we learn? Two things. Verse 19 to 23, we learn that Paul is basically saying, do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes. I like that. It, it, Paul uses actually this, this idea of, I will become all things to all people. It's, it sounds like a chameleon, doesn't it? Like it changes colors based upon its environment. I think one commentator actually refers to that, that, that Paul may have in mind that. I think what he's saying simply is, become like the people you really want to express the love of Jesus to. I'm free, but I will become like. And, I, and I, the one in particular is this bond slave, an indentured slave. And you think of somebody that has nothing. So how do they survive? How do you survive in a situation where you have literally nothing? Or, or you're in a situation a difficult situation like our friend Sam, who's lost his wife. He has a young child at home. He needs to go to work, and he doesn't have a family. What is he supposed to do? I mean, seriously, how, where, where's the safety net for somebody like that? And so this young woman comes along and takes Kai uh, throughout the week so that Sam can work and becomes part of the family to help Sam. God uses somebody. Do whatever it takes. And that's, that's what's happening in that particular situation. When Paul became a slave, he became like those who had to survive. It reminds me of the City of Joy. Do you ever read the City of Joy by Lotteret? He writes a story about a Catholic Polish, Polish priest who who moves to Calcutta to meet Mother Teresa when she was alive to see what it was like serving in the leper uh, hospitals that Mother Teresa was setting up all throughout Calcutta. And the, 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 the moment of truth in the book is when this priest has to receive food or he's under a bridge and he receives food from a leper's hand. And when he takes the food... He says, it was at that moment, I felt like I it was entering into the life of Jesus. What it was like to be Jesus, reaching out to touch a leper. And it was at that moment, he felt like he was doing whatever it took. He actually used the leper hospitals instead of going to the private hospitals when he became sick. He entered in. He did whatever it took. How comfortable are we? among classes of people very different than ourselves, ethnic minorities, prisoners, prostitutes, aid victims. There was a man there that actually visits gay pride uh, parades just to be present, to talk, to love 
on people that are there. Ed Stetzer in Christianity Today, a writer, an author, said uh, this in, a, in an article he wrote called Loving the Lost. Churches without the broken are broken churches. He said, the Christian life is not about finding safety and comfort. It's not what it is. I've been fascinated by the fact that a lot of Christians don't seem to like non-Christians. I'd add suffering, messy, broken down people that are both what I want, I would say are outside the church, but also inside the church. And Paul said, we need to become like them. But there's a second thing Paul says. And he moves from this idea of whatever it takes to running this race. And in verse 24 to 27, it's not simply whatever it takes, it's however long it takes in order to connect with people to be the love of Christ to somebody else. It's whatever it takes, and we're going to get into some specifics in a second, but also however long. Because look what he does. He uses the metaphor of the race. And they all know the Panhellenic races. They understood that. That they, they came through Corinth, and it was a big deal. Uh, every two years on the Isthmus, they would have these, these festivals. And in the festival, there'd be a running race and a boxing match and various things. And so Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Then do it to receive not a perishable wreath, but an imperishable one from Christ. There's a reward that we get. So therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, and I box in such a way as not breathing the air. But I discipline my body, Paul says, so that I might preach to others and not be disqualified. So Paul uses these ancient Mediterranean uh, games, contests, to describe a couple things. First of all, the training. And the first aspect of it is the discipline to win. See, Everybody knew when they would enter into the, this, this particular race or one of these events that they would vow to Zeus for 10 months to, to work as hard as they could to become prepared. So there was a commitment to discipline in the area of self-control. And the word self-control literally means to set aside certain things in order to get something else. You, you, there's going to be a cost to it. Paul's saying, to enter this race on behalf of other people. Always remember, it's on behalf of others. And so we're running this race on behalf of others. And we're doing it in a way, as Paul says, first of all, with discipline to win. Self-control. We're under control to get the prize. Uh, And there was an unwillingness to give up. They weren't jogging through the race. They were running, right? There was no jogging going on. It was a full-out race. And Paul wants us to get that. And so we have to understand that there's a mission involved. Paul says, first of all, I may run in such a way. He, he has in mind that there is aim, that there's a winning, there's a line, there's something I'm looking forward to. I'm 
going toward a goal. It was understood as Paul described that. It reminds me of the story of of, uh, Florence Chadwick. Does anybody know who Florence Chadwick is or was? She was a swimmer. She was the first woman that swam from Catalina to the mainland. The first time she tried, she didn't make it. She was a mile offshore, but because of the clouds and the fog, the low fog, she couldn't see the shoreline, and she gave up a mile before. The second time, the fog came. But this time, she kept an image in her mind of the shoreline. And she kept swimming through the fog with that image in mind. And I think what she's saying, or what I I think the illustration would point out, is that what Paul is saying is that obviously Jesus is at the finish line with the imperishable wreath. But I think it's more than that. It's Jesus in others. That's what Paul's mission was. Was it was seeing Jesus and others and doing whatever it takes, however long it takes. You keep going, you stay in the race. The second thing that I see here is this boxing illustration. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but the idea is when they would fight, they would put on their leather gloves, and it was a violent sport that you have to make contact. Recently, I was just fascinated with Muhammad Ali and I was watching some of the clips, early clips of some of his fights. And uh, it was a documentary on TV. And what you see, what you notice is when, when a boxer makes contact, it changes everything, right? I mean, you can miss and you keep going. You're just wearing yourself out. But when you finally make contact, you're, you've, you've connected. Something happens. That's where you find victory. And that's the idea. What Paul's saying is you got to make contact. you got to come personally involved in someone else's life. You got, there's got to be some contact. And at some point in our lives, God's going to call us to make contact. So here's four things that I thought of this morning. How do we respond to tragedy? Well, first of all, you have to get, have close proximity. I think that's what's coming out of this, is that Paul had very close proximity to get to know someone's culture, somebody's life, somebody's pain, somebody's difficulty. Don't shy away and keep your distance or say that someone else will take care of it. And maybe this time around someone else will, but there will come a time when you're called upon to make contact. And it's your time to enter in to someone's life so that you might bring the love of Christ into their lives and their family. And, and, and recognize that that family has a larger family, and there's a lot of people watching, and they're wondering, how does the church respond? How are they loving? How, how far are they willing to go? And they're observing that. And there's lots of people watching that. What I have learned is three things. Listen, learn, and let the Holy Spirit lead you. You don't just jump in. You get close, and you listen, you learn, and then the Holy Spirit leads you. Stay silent until words are needed. Russ Hamilton, who's one of our uh, church attenders, talked about the loss of his wife, Shannon. And he wrote me this week and said, I've got some suggestions Here's what I learned, having gone through uh, the loss of a loved one. He said, be normal and include them. Include someone in your life and in your activities. But be normal. 
I mean, let's stay normal. After my wife Shannon passed away, countless people tried to make me feel better by saying something. And in doing so, I ended up at the River Church. I didn't know anybody. The best thing people can do is just say hello and not ask how I'm doing or how your kids are doing or it must be tough. I mean, that, we assume that. It's the first thing that we want to say, but sometimes not saying anything, just sitting back and learning, observing, seeing how we can enter in is really important. Um, when Shannon passed, I just wanted to feel normal in worship. A lot of my friends invited me to the Dodger games, cleaned up the house for me, took me out to dinner. We just had a good time. Just in, being in, including others in your life. Um, here's four things that I've learned from some articles of not, things not to say in times of tragedy and difficulty. Good things through impersonal uh, forms of communication. And this person's basically saying that, yeah, there are times to text, but uh, there is a time to get up close and personal. And, and a text is not up close and personal. And there will be those moments where we're called upon to go. Stay a short amount. Always stay short, a shorter amount of time than you think. Just go. Stay a short amount of time. Give someone a hug. And get out of there. Unless they invite you to stay longer. It's exhausting for people in tragedy. Um, untimely problem-solving statements. Wait until they're ready. We want to help. We want to solve. But just wait. There'll be a time. Maybe you'll be asked upon. One of the social workers that helped us through our crisis with our son, I remember she said she gave us a sheet, and one of the things that was on the sheet was basically don't ask and don't jump in and give solutions until they're ready to talk and listen and ask you. And that's really hard because we want to solve the problem. Uh, three, saying either nothing to them about their suffering or nothing at all. Just talking about the ball game or whatever. And uh, this particular person would say, no, you need to address it. How are you doing with your loss? Number four, I know what you're going through is probably not the best thing to say. We know that. But I care. I'm here for you. And I'll just sit with you if that's all you need. Number two, you have to get into the messy details of their lives. You really do need to get to know them. It's being available to help sort through things. No judgment. C.S. Lewis had a friend, Sheldon Van Auken. And in a severe mercy, Sheldon Van Auken talks about losing his wife, Davy, And going through the process of grieving. And Lewis was the man. Lewis was his friend. And Lewis led him through this process. And this is what Van Auken says about Lewis. C.S. Lewis was to be the friend in my loss and grief. The one hand in mine, as I walked through a dark and desolate night, other friends gave me love, and it was a fire to warm me. But Lewis was the friend I needed, the friend who would go with me down to the bedrock of meaning. Deep conversations, available getting really, really deep with their difficulties and their questions, their anger, their frustration, their pacing, their wanting to avoid things, all of the things that happen. It says that he gave me not only love, but wisdom, understanding, 
and when necessary, when necessary, severity, severity. Be severe in how deep you're willing to go. Um, there are so many issues facing our culture today with young people. When we talk about depression and anxiety and we talk about suicide and we talk about mental illness, this was the year that more kids started to say they felt sad, hopeless, and useless than ever before. The, the vocabulary is coming out. We're hearing kids, thousands more, communicating depression. They're communicating they feel left out and lonely. 50% increase in clinical depression uh, between 2011 and 2015. A substantial increase in suicide. Here's five uncomfortable issues that the church needs to talk about, according to one blog. Addiction, sexuality, sincere doubt, mental illness, and loneliness. Those are the issues on young people's minds and hearts. And we're a family. We're a community. Bill reminded me, we need to be asking. And we need to be encouraging young people to talk about these things. Ask questions. Come alongside. I saw Charlie Saturday morning. He took his life on Saturday. We swam together. We had a conversation. And he was coming back to swimming. He seemed good. He wanted to get back in the pool. He was with his dad. Came to coffee. It's the last I saw of him. I think we can do more. It's asking. And, and, and we want to encourage young people Speak out. Say something. Say, even if you don't want to say something, I'm hurting. Say something. We need to hear it. I'm not suggesting that there's a magic pill, but we need to be networking. We met a woman over on the island. Just sat with her, and, and she has five clinics. They're transcranial magnetic stimulation clinics. It's now been FDA approved. Never heard of it before. It's for people that have tried medication, that have gone through anxiety and depression and various things. And it's non-invasive brain stimulation to get the neurotransmitters working. It's just something to research. Why have we not heard about this? Why are we not... Re Some of you need to be advocates and write about it. Some of you are researchers. Some of you need to get involved and help us. Dr. Amen, a faith-based, um, twice board-certified psychiatrist out of Orange County, wrote a book called Change Your Brain, Change Your Life. Uses brain scans to, to, to see how the blood's flowing in the brain to tailor may make uh, a solution. There's lots of things that we can be doing. And some of you can financially afford treatments that others can't afford. That's what we're about, that kind of communication. Third, you have to be willing to be there for the long haul. It's not the first week. It's not the month. It's next year. Someone came up to me and said, I'm starting, I'm st I'm starting a train of guys to come alongside Cam. 
that will be there for the long haul. Just a touch and stay with him. Stay with him. The long haul. I love uh, Luis Palau ministry up in Portland, Oregon. And Kevin Palau came and spoke to us many uh, months ago. And he told us about uh, his brother Keith. And, and Keith is the third son of this famous evangelist from South America. They've reached millions and millions of people around the world. And what Keith has done is he's joined the Timbers, which is the most rowdiest fan group of any professional uh, team, professional team. They're rowdy. They're noxious. And here's this son of an evangelist who joins the Timbers fan club and becomes part of them. And what he does is he turns this fan club into a, a movement of activism. It's now called the Timbers Army. And they're, they're involved in doing makeovers at foster clinics and all over the Portland, Oregon area where children come together to see their parents. And they want to beautify that center and they're involved in changing those around and making them beautiful. Um, the Luis Palau ministry is not just out evangelizing. They actually believe, and Kevin said this, that during this time when they help schools each year, uh, they stop evangelism. And the best evangelism is non-evangelism. And that may sound really weird for us, especially in light of the fact that Paul wanted to win people to Christ. But we win them through our lives. And so what they do is they revamp schools to such a degree as unified the, the entire church community up there. And school district won't even make a move without first connecting with this organization. So where are we? We have an opportunity to respond. This morning, Paul is encouraging us to become like all people to win them to the love of Christ. To run the race in such a way that we may win. All in. Whatever it takes, however long it takes. And there will be a moment and a time for each of us to play that role. We're a we're community. We're a loving community. We're a powerful force that is going out in the community at a 3 o'clock this afternoon on the baseball diamond, PB High School. We're going to see part of our community massively infusing the love of Jesus through relationships, bringing a hope in a very hard situation. And we're just going to keep doing that over and over again as a church. That's who we are. That's our mission. Let's pray. So, Father, as we head into communion and continue to worship, we are here together, and we stand together, and we are committed. And each of us are thinking of our own ways when you tap us on the shoulder and you say it's time to enter in, to become like so that we might win. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.